Welcome to Seek and Share. My name is Kevin. And my name is Melissa. And we are on chapter 12 of Patriarchs and Prophets, entitled Abraham and Canaan. Our last episode, we did go over the calling of Abraham. So now we are in Abraham and Canaan. And before we get started, um, we want to go ahead and pray. And and we also want to just also mention that, you know, we want people to participate if there's anyone who would like to volunteer for reading or be a guest or has any type of uh, feedback or any suggestions to add, please let us know. We'd, we'd love to hear it and we respond as soon as possible. But uh, let's go ahead and, and get into prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful day. We thank you, Lord, for all your blessings. And we ask in a, in a special way that you be with us, let your Holy Spirit guide our minds and our hearts, help us to understand this message and for us to have a, a better view of who you are as well as who we are in you lord help us to apply whatever we learn today or whatever we take away in our own life and let it be used to edify you and to help others we ask all these things in your holy name amen amen okay so let's continue with chapter 12 canaan <clears throat> Abraham returned to Canaan, very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. Lot was still with him, and again they they came to Bethel, and pitched their tents by the altar which they had before erected. They soon found that increased possessions brought increased trouble. In the midst of hardships and trials, they had dwelt together in harmony, but in their prosperity there was danger of strife between them. The pasturage was not sufficient for the flocks and herds of both, and the frequent disputes among the herdsmen were brought for settlement to their masters. It was evident that they must separate. Abraham was Lot's senior in years, and his superior in relation, in wealth, and in position, yet he was the first to oppose the plans for preserving peace. Although the whole land had been given him by God himself, he curtailed courteously waved his right let there be no strife he said between me and thee and between my herdmen and thy herdmen for we be brethren it is not the whole land is not the whole land before thee separate thyself i pray thee from me if thou wilt take the left hand then i will go to the right or if thou depart to the right then i will go to the left Here the noble, unselfish spirit of Abraham was displayed. How many under similar circumstances would at all hazards cling to their individual rights and preferences? How many households have thus been rent asunder? How many churches have been divided, making the cause of truth a byword and a reproach among the wicked? Let there be no strife between me and thee, said Abraham, for we be brethren not only by natural relationship, but as worshipers of the true God. The children of God, the world over, are one family, and the same spirit of love and conciliation should govern them. Be kindly affectioned to one another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Romans 12.10 It is the teaching of our Savior. The cultivation of a uniform courtesy, a willingness to do to others as we would wish them to do to us, would annihilate half the ills of life. The spirit of of self-aggrandizement is the spirit of Satan, but the heart in which the love of Christ is cherished will possess that charity which seeketh not her own. Such will heed the divine injunction. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Philippians 2.4 Although Lot owed his prosperity to his connection with Abraham, he manifested no gratitude to his benefactor. Courtesy would have dictated that he yield the choice to Abraham, but instead of this, he selfishly endeavored to grasp all its advantages. He lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that is, that it was well watered everywhere. Even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar, the most fertile region in all Palestine was the Jordan River, reminding the beholders of the lost paradise 
and equaling the beauty and productiveness of the now enriched plains they had so lately left. There, was also, there were also cities, wealthy and beautiful, inviting to profitable traffic in their crowded marts. Dazzled with visions of worldly gain, Lot overlooked the moral and spiritual evils that would be encountered there. The inhabitants of the plain were sinners before the Lord exceedingly, but of this he was ignorant. Hello? 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 Can you hear me? Hello? Can you hear me? Hello? Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I uh, hear you. Uh, I think the last thing we heard was uh, the inhabitants. Okay. Um, I think it's... All right, let me... All right, let's just keep going. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Okay, so you said the last thing you heard was the inhabitants? Mm-hmm. Let's see. The inhabitants of the plain were sinners before the Lord exceedingly, but of this he was ignorant, or knowing, gave it but little weight. He chose him all the plain of Jordan and pitched his tent toward Sodom. How little did he foresee the terrible results of that selfish choice? After the separation from Lot, Abraham again received from Lord from the Lord a promise of the whole country. Soon after this, he removed to Hebron, pitching his tent under the oaks of Mamre and erecting beside it an altar to the Lord. In the free air of those upland plains, with their olive groves and vineyards, their fields of waving grain, and the wide pasture grounds of the encircling hills, he dwelt, well content with his simple patriarchal life and leaving Lot the perilous luxury of the Vale of Sodom. Abraham was honored by the surrounding nations as a mighty prince and a wise and able chief. He did not shut away his influence from his neighbors. His life and character and their marked contrast with those of the worshippers of idols exerted a telling, a telling influence in favor of true faith. His allegiance to God was unswerving, while his affability and benevolence inspired confidence and friendship in his unaffected greatness and his unaffected greatness commanded respect and honor. His religion was not held as a precious treasure to be a jealousy toward to be a jealousy guarded and enjoyed solely by the possessor. True religion cannot be thus held for such a spirit is contrary to the principles of the gospel. While Christ is dwelling in the heart, it is impossible to conceal the light of his presence or for that light to grow dim. On the contrary, it will grow brighter and brighter as day by day the mist of selfishness and sin that envelop the soul are dispelled by the bright beams of the Son of Righteousness. The people of God are his representatives upon the earth, and he intends that they shall be lights in the moral darkness of this world. Scattered all over the country, in the towns, cities, and villages, they are God's witnesses, the channels through which he will communicate to an unbelieving world the knowledge of his will and the wonders of his grace. It is his plan that all who are partakers of the great salvation shall be missionaries for him. The piety of the Christian constitute the standard by which worldlings judge the gospel. Trials patiently borne, blessings gracefully gratefully received, meekness, kindness, mercy, and love habitually exhibited are the lights that shine forth in the character before the world, revealing the contrast with the darkness that comes of the selfishness of the natural heart. Christian faith, unfaltering in obedience and humble in the simplicity of his pilgrim life, Abraham was also wise in diplomacy and brave and skillful in war. Notwithstanding, he was known as the teacher of a new religion. Three royal brothers, rulers of the Amorite plains in which he dwelt, manifested their friendship by inviting him to enter into an alliance with them for greater security, for the country was filled with violence and oppression. 
an occasion soon arose for him to avail himself of this alliance. Shadolamer, king of Elam, had invaded Canaan 14 years before and made it tributary to him. Several of the princes now revolted, and the Elamite king, with four allies, again marched into the country to reduce them to submission. Five kings of Canaan joined their forces and met the invaders in the Vale of Siddim, but only to be completely overthrown. A large part of the army was cut to pieces, and those who escaped fled for safety to the mountains. The victors plundered the cities of the plain and departed with rich spoil, many captives, among whom were Lot and his family. Abraham, dwelling in peace in the oak groves at Mamre, learned from one of the fugitives the story of the battle and the calamity that had befallen his nephew. He had cherished no unkind memory of Lot's ingratitude. All his affection for him was awakened, and he determined that he should be rescued. Seeking, first of all, divine counsel, Abraham prepared for war. From his own encampment, he summoned 318 trained servants, men trained in the fear of God, in the service of their master, and in the practice of arms. His confederates, Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner, joined them with their bands, and together they started in pursuit of the invaders. The Elamites and their allies had encamped at Dan on the northern border of Canaan. Flushed with victory and having no fear of an assault from their vanquished foes, they had given themselves up to reveling. The patriarch divided his force so as to approach from different directions and came upon the encampment by night. His attack, so vigorous and unexpected, resulted in speedy victory. The king of Elam was slain and his panic-stricken forces were utterly routed. Lot and his family, with all the prisoners and their goods, were recovered, and the rich booty fell into the hands of the victors. To Abraham under God, the triumph was due. The worshiper of Jehovah had not only rendered a great service to the country, but had proved himself a man of valor. It was seen that this is not cowardice, and that Abraham's religion made him courageous in maintaining the right and defending the oppressed. His heroic, act, his heroic act gave him a widespread influence among the surrounding tribes. On his return, the king of Sodom came out with his retinue to honor the conqueror. He bade him take the goods, begging only that the prisoners should be restored. By the usage of war, the spoils belonged to the conquerors. But Abraham had undertaken this expedition with no purpose of gain, and he refused to take advantage of the unfortunate only stipulating that his confederates should receive the portion to which they were entitled. Few, if, oh, your turn. (laughs) Few, if subjected to such tests, would have shown themselves as noble as he did, as noble as did Abraham. Few would have resisted the temptation to secure so rich a booty. His example is a rebuke to self-seeking mercenary spirits. Abraham regarded the claims of the of justice and humanity. His conduct illustrates the inspired maxim, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, Leviticus 9.18. I have lifted up my hand, he said, unto the Lord the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a that I will na- that I will not take from a thread even a shoe latchet, that I will not take anything that is that is thine, lest thou shalt say, I have made Abraham rich. He would give them no occasion to think that he had engaged in warfare for the sake of gain or to attribute his prosperity to their gifts or favor. God had promised to bless Abraham and to him the glory should be ascribed. Another who came out to welcome the victorious patriarch was Melchizedek, king of Salem who brought forth bread and wine for the refreshment of his army. As priest of the Most High God, he pronounced a blessing upon Abraham and gave thanks to the Lord who had wrought so great a deliverance by his servant. And Abraham gave him tithes of all. Abraham gladly returned to his tent and his flocks, but his mind was disturbed by harassing thoughts. He had been a man of peace so far as possible shunning enmity and strife and with honor he recalled the scene of carnage he had witnessed. But the nations whose forces he had defeated 
would doubtless renew the invasion of Canaan and make him the special object of their vengeance. Becoming thus involved in, nation, in national quarrels, the peaceful quiet of his life would be broken. Furthermore, he had not entered upon the possession of Canaan, nor could he now hope for an heir to whom the promise might be fulfilled. In the vision of the night, the divine voice was again heard. Fear not, Abraham, were the words of the prince of princes. I am thy shield and thy exceedingly great reward. But his mind was so oppressed by forebodings that he could not now grasp the promise with unquestioning confidence as heretofore. He prayed for some tangible evidence that it would be fulfilled. And how was the covenant promise to be realized while the gift of a son was withheld? What wilt thou give me, he said, seeing I go childless, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. He proposed to make his trusty servant Eliezer his son by adoption, and the inheritor of his possessions. But he was assured that a child of his own was to be his heir. Then he was led outside his tent, and told to look up to the unnumbered stars glittering in the heavens, and he did so. The words were spoken, So shall thy seed be. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness, Romans 4.3. Still the patriarch begged for some visible token as a confirmation of his faith and as evidence to after generations that God's gracious purposes towards them would be accomplished. The Lord condescended to enter into a covenant with his servant, employing such forms as were customary among men for the ratification of a solemn engagement. By divine direction, Abraham sacrificed a heifer, a she-goat, and a ram, each three years old, dividing the bodies and laying the pieces a little distance apart. To these he added a turtle dove and a young pigeon, which, however, were not divided. This being done, he reverently passed between the parts of the sacrifices, making a solemn vow to God of perpetual obedience. Watchful and steadfast, he remained beside the carcasses, to the going down the sun to guard them from being defiled or devoured by birds of prey. About sunset, he sank into a deep sleep, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And the voice of God was heard, bidding him not to expect immediate possession of the promised land. And pointing forward to the sufferings of the, his posterity before their establishment in Canaan, the plan of redemption was here open to him, the death of Christ, the great sacrifice, and his coming in glory. Abraham saw also the earth restored to its Eden beauty to be given him for an everlasting possession as the final and complete fulfillment of the promise. As a pledge of this covenant of God with men, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp, symbols of the divine presence, passed between the severed victims, totally consuming them. And again a voice was heard by Abraham confirming the gift of the land of Canaan to his descendants. From the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. When Abraham had been nearly 25 years in Canaan, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. In all the patriarch fell upon his face, and the message continued, Behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father to many nations. In token of the fulfillment of this covenant, his name heretofore, called Abraham, was changed to Abram, which signifies father of a great multitude. Sarai's name became Sarah, princess, for she, the divine voice, had, princess, for, for said the divine voice, she shall be a mother of nations, king of people shall be of her, kings of people shall be of her. At this time, the rite of circumcision was given to Abraham as a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet, which he had yet being uncircumcised. Romans 4.11 It was to be observed by the patriarch and his descendants as a token that they were devoted to the service of God and thus separated from idolaters, and that God accepted them as his particular treasure, as his peculiar treasure. By this right, they were pledged to fulfill on their part the conditions of the covenant made with Abraham. They were, not to they were not to contract marriages with the heathen, 
for by doing so they would lose their reverence for God and his holy law. They would be tempted to engage in the sinful practices of other nations and would be seduced into idolatry. God conferred great honor upon Abram. Angels of heaven walked and talked with him as friend with friend. When judgments were about to be visited upon Sodom, the fact was not hidden from him, and he became an intercessor with God. He became an intercessor with God for sinners. His interview with the angels represents also a beautiful example of hospitality. In the hot summer noontime, the patriarch was sitting in his tent door, looking out over the quiet landscape, when he saw at, in the distance three travelers approaching. Before reaching his tent, the strangers halted, as if consulting as to their course. Without waiting for them to solicit favors, Abraham rose quickly, and they were apparently turning in another direction, as he hastened after them, and with the utmost courtesy, urged them to honor him by tarrying their refreshment. Honor him by tarrying for refreshment. With his own hands, he brought water that they might wash the dust of travel from their feet. He himself selected their food, and while they were at rest under the cooling shade, an entertainment was made ready, and he stood respectfully beside them while they partook of his hospitality. This act of courtesy God regarded of sufficient importance in record uh, of sufficient importance to record it in his word, and a thousand years later it was referred to by an inspired apostle, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware angels unawares. Hebrews thirteen two. Abraham had seen in his guests only three tired wayfarers, little thinking that among them was one whom he might worship without sin. But the true character of the heavenly messengers was now revealed. Though they were on their way as ministers of wrath, yet to Abraham, the man of faith, they spoke first of blessings. Though God is strict to mark iniquity and to punish transgression, he takes no delight in vengeance. The work of destruction is a strange work to him who is infinite in love. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. Psalms 25, 14. Abraham had honored God, and the Lord honored him, taking him into his counsels and revealing to him his purposes. Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, said the Lord? The cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done all together according to the cry of it, which is come to unto me, and if not, I will know. God knew well the measure of Sodom's guilt, but he expressed himself after the manner of men, that the justice of his dealings might be understood. Before bringing judgment upon the transgressors, he would go himself to institute an examination of their course. If they had not passed the limits of divine mercy, he would still grant them space for repentance. Two of the heavenly messengers departed, leaving Abraham alone with him, with him who he know, with he now knew to be the Son of God. And the man of faith pleaded from the inhabitants of Sodom. Once he had saved them by his sword, now he endeavored to save them by prayer. Lot and his household were still dwellers there, and the unselfish love that prompted Abraham to their rescue from the Elamites now sought to save them if it were God's will from the storm of divine judgment. With deep reverence and humility, he urged his plea. I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. There is no self-confidence, no boasting of his own righteousness. He did not claim favor on the ground of his obedience or the sacrifices he had made in God in doing God's will. Himself a sinner, he pleaded in the sinner's behalf. Such a spirit, all who approach God should possess. Yet Abraham manifested the confidence of a child pleading with a loved father. He came close to the heavenly messenger and fervently urged his petition. Though Lot had become a dweller in Sodom, he did not partake in the iniquity of its inhabitants. Abraham thought that in the populous city there must be other worshippers of the true God. And in view of this, he pleaded, 
that be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, that be far from thee, shall not judge of all the earth do right? Abraham asked not once, merely, but many times. Waxing bolder, as his requests were granted, he continued until he gained the assurance that even if ten righteous persons could be found in it, the city would be spared. Love for perishing souls inspired Abraham's prayer. While he loathed the sins that of that corrupt city, he desired that the sinners might be saved. His deep interest for Sodom shows the anxiety that we, would, that we should feel for the impenitent. We should cherish hatred of sin, but pity the love for the sinner. Oh, but pity and love for the sinner. All around us are souls going down to ruin as hopeless, as terrible as that which befell Sodom. Every day the probation of some every day the probation of some is closing. Every hour some are passing beyond the reach of mercy. <clears throat> and where are the voices of warning and entreaty to bid the sinner flee from this fearful doom? Where are the hands stretched out to draw him back from death? Where are those who sit where are those with who with humility and persevering faith are pleading with God for him. The spirit of Abraham was the spirit of Christ. The son of God is himself the great intercessor in the sinner's behalf. <clears throat> he who has paid the price for its redemption knows the worth of the human soul. With an antagonism to, to evil, such as can exist only in a nature spotlessly pure, Christ manifested toward the sinner, a love which infinite goodness alone could conceive. In the agonies of the crucifixion, himself burdened with the awful weight of the sins of the world, he prayed for his revilers and murderers. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke twenty three thirty four. Of Abraham it is written that he is called the friend of God, the father of all them that believe. James two twenty three. Romans 4:11 The testimony of God concerning his this faithful patriarch is Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge my commandments my statutes my laws and again I know him that he will command his children and his household after him and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him it was a high honor to which Abraham was called, that of being the father of the people who for centuries were the guardians and preservers of the truth of God, for the world of that people through whom all the nations of the earth should be blessed in the advent of the promised Messiah. But he who called the patriarch judged him worthy. It is God that speaks. He who understands the thoughts afar off and places the right estimate upon men says, I know him. There would be one there would be on the part of Abraham no betraying of the truth for selfish purposes. He would keep the law and deal justly with justly and righteously. And he would not only fear the Lord himself, but would cultivate religion in his home. He would instruct his family in the righteousness. The law of God would be the rule in his household. Abraham's household comprised more, comprised more than a thousand souls. Those who were led by his teachings to worship the one God found a home in his encampment. And there, as in a school, they received such instruction that would, such instruction as would prepare them to be representatives of the true faith. Thus, a great responsibility rested upon him. He was training heads of families and his methods of government would be carried out in the households over which they should preside. In early times, the father was the ruler and priest of his own family, and he exercised authority over his children, even after they had families of their own. His descendants were taught to look up to him as their head in both religious and secular matters. This patriarchal system of government, Abraham endeavored to perpetuate as is intended to preserve the knowledge of God. 
it was necessary to bind the members of the household together in order to build up a barrier against the idolatry that had become so widespread and so deep-seated. Abraham sought by every means in his power to guard the inmates of his encampment against mingling with the heathen and witnessing their idolatrous practices, for he knew that familiarity with evil would insensibly corrupt the principles. The greatest care was exercised to shut out everything. Uh, you disappeared again, Kevin. We apologize. We had some technical difficulties, and we're just going to finish up the chapter 12 that we were in. There's only probably about a page and a half maybe two pages the most to finish up. I just going to we're going to finish up on the reading that we were doing before the issues occurred. So I'm going to reread the last sentence that was recorded just so we can kind of get back on track. Abraham sought by every means in his power to guard the inmates of his encampment against mingling with the heathen and witnessing their idolatrous practices, for he knew that familiarity with evil would insensibly corrupt the principles. The greatest care was exercised to shut out every form of false religion and to impress the mind with the majesty and glory of the living God as the true object of worship. It was a wise arrangement which God himself had made to cut off his people so far as possible from connection with the heathen, making them a people dwelling alone and not reckoned among the nations. He had separated Abraham from his idolatrous kindred that the patriarch might train and educate his family apart from the seductive influences which would have surrounded them Tamia, and that the truth faith and that the true faith might be preserved in its purity by his descendants from generation to generation. Abraham's affection for his children and his household led him to guard their religious faith to impart to them a knowledge of the divine status as the most precious legacy he could transmit to them and through them to the world. All were taught that they were under the rule of God, of the God of heaven. There was to be no oppression on the part of the parents and no disobedience on the part of the children. God's law had appointed to each his duty and only in obedience to it could any secure happiness or prosperity. His own example, the silent influence of his daily life was a constant lesson. The, the unswerving integrity, the benevolence and unselfish courtesy, which had won the admiration of kings, were displayed in the home. There was a fragrance about the life and nobility and loveliness of character, which revealed to all that he was connected with heaven. He did not neglect the soul of the humblest servant. In his household, there was not one law for the master and another for the servant, a royal way for the rich and another for the poor. All were treated with justice and compassion as the inheritors with him of the grace of life. He will command his household. There would be no sinful neglect to restrain the evil propensities of his children, no weak, unwise, indulgent favoritism, no yielding of his conviction of duty to the claims of mistaken affection. Abraham would not only give right instruction, but he would maintain the authority of just and righteous laws. How few are in our day who follow this example? How few are there in our day who follow this example? On the part of too many parents, there is a blind and selfish sentimentalism, miscalled love, which is manifested in leaving children with their unformed judgment and undisciplined passion to the control of their own will. This is the various cruelty to the youth and a great wrong to the world. Parental indulgence causes disorder in families and in society. It confirms in the young the desire to follow inclination instead of submitting to the divine requirements. Thus they grow up with a heart adverse to doing God's will, and they transmit their 
their irreligious, insubordinate spirit to their children and children's children. Like Abraham, parents should command their household after them. Let obedience to parental authority be taught and enforced as a first step in obedience to the authority of God. The light esteem in which the law of God is held, even by religious leaders, has been productive of great evil. The teaching which has become so widespread that the divine statutes are no longer binding upon men is the same as idolatry in its effect upon the morals of the people. Those who seek to lessen the claims of God's holy law are striking directly at the foundation of the government of families and nations. Religious parents failing to walk in his statutes do not command their household to keep the way of the Lord. The law of God is not made the rule of life. The children, as they make homes of their own, feel under no obligation to teach their children what they themselves have never been taught. And this is why there are so many godless families. This is why depravity is so deep and widespread. Not until parents themselves walk in the law of the Lord with perfect hearts will they be prepared to command their children after them. A reformation in this respect is needed. A reformation which shall be deep and broad. Parents need to reform. Ministers need to reform. They need God in their households. If they would see different state, if they would see a different state of things, they might bring His word into their families, and must make it their counselor. They must teach their children that it is the voice of God addressed to them, and is to be implicitly obeyed. They should patiently instruct their children kindly, and un tiringly teach them how to live in order to please God. The children of such a household are prepared to meet the sophistries of infidelity. They have accepted the Bible as their basis of their faith, and they have a foundation that cannot be swept away by the incoming tide of skepticism. In too many households, prayer is neglected. Parents feel that they have no time for morning and evening worship. They cannot spare a few moments to be spent and thanksgiving to God for his abundant mercies. For the blessed sunshine and the showers of rain, which cause vegetation to flourish, and for the guardianship of holy angels. They have no time to offer prayer for divine help and guidance, and for the abiding presence of Jesus in the household. They go forth to labor as the ox or the horse goes, without one thought of God or heaven. They have souls so precious that they rather them permit them to be hopelessly lost the son of god gave his life to ransom them but they have little more appreciation of his great goodness than have the beasts that perish wow so powerful like the patriarchs of old those who profess to love god should erect an altar to the lord wherever they pitch their tent if ever there was a time when every house should be a house of prayer it is now Fathers and mothers should often lift up their, hand, their hearts to God in humble supplication for themselves and for their children. Let the father as priest of the household lay upon the altar of God the morning and evening sacrifice while the wife and the children unite in prayer and praise. In such a household, Jesus will love to tarry. From every Christian home, a holy light should shine forth. Love should be revealed in action. It should flow out of all home intercourse, showing itself in thoughtful kindness, in gentle, unselfish courtesy. There are homes where this principle is carried out, homes where God is worshipped and truest love reigns. And truest love reigns. From these homes, morning and evening prayer ascends to God as sweet incense, and his mercies and blessings descend upon the suppliants like the morning dew. A well-ordered Christian household is a powerful argument in favor of the reality of the Christian religion, an argument that the infidel cannot gainsay. All can see that there is an influence at work in the family that affects the children and that the God of Abraham is with them. If the homes of professed Christians had a right religious mold, they would exert a mighty influence for good. They would indeed be the light of the world. The God of heaven speaks to every faithful parent in the words addressed to Abraham. I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord 
to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. Wow, how how to what a way to end a chapter. Yeah. Making a note of this. It was it was funny because as we were reading it, it didn't start. In the beginning, it just kind of stuck with the story. Right. And um, as we were reading, and it kept uh, mentioning how God, God, God's plan was, or how challenging, or how, not how challenging, how active and how busy God was in keeping them from being tainted by all the pagans around them. Mm-hmm. When we were reading about that, it really reminded me of, of what I'm going through now with my children as far as whether it's TV or the friends they hang around with, how to keep them safe from being exposed to a lot of stuff that will give them um, an accurate idea that it's okay to do these worldly things. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, whether it's just, even if it's a, a nature channel or something positive on TV, the commercials are are very, you know, half of them are alcohol commercials for beer or something. Mm-hmm. And the other half, a lot of these other commercials are have a bad, um, you know, sex sells type uh, a technique on their promoting. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's even just the commercials, I find, when even if it's a decent channel, I have to keep them away from that. I have to you know, not watch as much TV with them or turn the TV off when, or change it when those commercials come on. And it's sad because, you know, that's just TV. <laughs> it's just programming. Yeah. And you see the attack and you see how you really have to be, or at least the, how I feel convicted with what God wants us to be looking at. I feel, I see so much bad stuff that I have to, it's very hard to even watch TV with my kids. Yeah, I was thinking about that as they were explaining it, and then all the way towards the end of the reading, they got into the household and how <coughs> how important the household is for you to be a a person of um, integrity, a person of character. It's 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 on both. It has to be the same in, in both worlds and their home and family life, and 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 that's really something that stuck out to me in this reading how well-rounded Abraham was and he really did have that character of Christ with how considerate and generous he was with others and the way he was with strangers and that whole line in the reading that there were not separate laws for the um the family members of his household compared to the servants so that's awesome I mean that is It, it makes so much other, sense why why he was chosen. Yeah, and I think the other um, the other takeaway from all this is the fact that he was he was a silent example. You know, it says it in one of the the, the verses here that oh here it is his own example. The silent influence of his daily life was a constant lesson, and I think that that's hugely powerful because that that explains why we shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't be do as I say, not as I do. It should be Mm -hmm. do as I do. And then it also highlights here that he equipped them to be able to hold their own household. Not, not that he didn't make them dependent on him. Like most Kings and rulers do. They, they make the people, the community dependent on them. Even if you had a, a father of the home who was more, more focused on having the control rather than, you know, sustaining the family. He's, he's going to make it so that the family submits to him in every aspect so that they're not independent. You know, so here it says Abraham's household comprised more than a thousand souls. Those who were led by his teachings to worship the one God found a home in his encampment. And here as in a school, they receive such instruction as would prepare them to be representatives of the true faith. Thus, a great responsibility rested upon him. He was training heads of families, and his methods of government would be carried out in the households over which they should preside. So he's taking that care for strangers, 
you know, and just, it just sounds like he's not your typical pastor that, that knows how to pastor a congregation, but his house is upside down. Yeah. Abraham sounds like the kind of, the kind of pastor who is, you know, he, he's good. He's good outside of home because his home is so put together. And that was mentioned in the reading, how, you know, ministers, you know, take after his example as far as the yeah. household, because it's very common that when you're doing God's work, A, you're going to be very busy, and B, you're going to have a huge spiritual target on your back. Right. Always being attacked. So that that's really cool that he was, he had that already, you know, that mm-hmm. he's kind of like the, um, the original article, you know, we, we have Jesus, the example, but before chronologically abraham came first so he's a great example of of how practical humans can develop christ execute it yeah what else i thought was cool was when it said that he interceded for the people of sodom Mm -hmm. just like like you always hear that that abraham was kind of the he's the the what is the archetype of god but then Mm -hmm. he's kind of like jesus too yeah. You know, and That's she makes a point here where she says that he's interceding for Sodom the way Jesus is interceding for us. Yeah. You know, he's pleading with them, you know. I mean, if you really look at it and you bring up a good point, you got you nailed two of the Godhead. But when you mm-hmm. read this chapter kind of pointed out how he has all three of those components because the Holy Spirit's the comforter. Right. This guy's he comforted comfort- his people. He's comforting everybody, and yeah. he's doing the same thing Christ did. He looks at everybody the same. He's not looking mm-hmm. at their faults. He's looking at them all the same. So but it would make sense cool. that he would be chosen. He would be chosen to be the father of all nations. Yeah, that's really. Yeah. I mean, his character was really magnified in this this chapter to me. Like, because he, yeah, we know he's a man of faith. We know he had a great relationship with God, but. This touched on a lot of more intimate parts about him that right. are really, um, it, it, it's a blessing. It, it motivates me. Right. But it's cool. When you really get into it, there's such a bad rap for the Old Testament. There's such a bad rap for everything that was going on in the Bible mm-hmm. during those times. And even the way people portray God, which is, but if you really do your homework, there's grace, there's love all around, you know? Yeah, You know, of course, course. guidelines and the rules for that specific stiff-necked people at that time look a little harsh to us, but all of it was done for love and for protection and for Mm -hmm. all these, everything that's underneath that love umbrella. And it could be hard to, to think that way when you look at those times, but if you really dwell and meditate in the Word and you get into it and you see you know it's a different time it's a different people um, right. in the past i used to think it had to be easier to to serve god in those days because you get to see the miracles and whatnot but when you as i got older and matured and i studied that region of the world what was going on politically historically mm. economically i would not want to live back then it would be right. hard to actually trust God and, and because there was so much distractions there was a, always a consistent attack towards God's people things that would discourage people's faith and, and break their spirits that I don't think we understand how rough it was back then right and in, in essence I actually think that we are more privileged and it's more convenient for us oh yeah now being after Jesus having kind of like the the finished product you know what i mean mm-hmm. and it, but that's you, why we're the church of laodicea because we we are sitting on it yeah and i think it, it's 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 easier now to serve god than it would have been back then mm-hmm. and i used to mm-hmm. think otherwise when i was a kid but i really think now when you know the details and the context of what those people are going through is we're very lucky we're very privileged and blessed yeah. to have what we have and and I mean, the stuff that we have as little apps, whether it's a Bible app, mm-hmm. you know, we've got thousands of years of scrolls <laughs> at the palm, if, in the palm of our the hand, palm yeah. of our hand, our fingertips. 
And right. if you, you showed all that to these people back then, if we can go in a time machine and put it in their language and they it blow their mind. Yeah. You know, they'd think we were someone from from heaven. You know now that so, Yeah, uh, now now that you bring up language, what I love about Ellen White's writings is that she when it comes to Old Testament themes and topics and stories, she puts it in the terminology or in the right context. Because when you think about people who were translating the Bible, you know, in their time, they were thinking very legalistic. They were thinking very, um, there was a lot of controversy. So their, their, their primary focus was on what are, what's the authority? What's the final authority of God? And so the, the God of the Old Testament, you, you know, if, if that, that term itself, the God of the Old Testament, it's only one God, but people differentiate Old Testament God and New Testament God because the voice in the Old Testament is so harsh. Yeah. You know, and so I appreciate Ellen White where she kind of turns it and shows that there was such love, like you said earlier, there's so much love and so much mercy and such relation. You know, I, that, I think that's we have a relationship with Jesus. But imagine, you know, Abraham, who's just talking to God and reasoning with God. And yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And mm-hmm. I hope whoever listening enjoys it as well and, and can find something for them and is blessed. And again, you know, we we're not professionals. So we, we thank you for your consideration and for your patience with our technical issues today or the way we read or the errors and stuttering and whatnot. We apologize. Mm-hmm. But, we'll um, get better. We we hope someone listens and is motivated to join us. Uh, we would love to have more than just us reading. And it'd be fun to get a, another perspective. And more heads are always better than one. Yeah, have a discussion. So we want to thank you for listening and, and hope you join us for our next episode or our next chapter, which is, uh, what is the next chapter's title? The next one is chapter 13. Give me a second. The test of faith. So we continue with Abraham. This is going to be good. And uh, did you have any other closing remarks? No, just I, I love to see Old Testament God painted in the right light. Right. Me too. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you guys again for joining us on Seek and Share. And we'll talk to you next time. Take care.